Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Monday, March 6th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ron DeSantis is one of two people most likely to be the next Republican nominee for president. The biggest knock against DeSantis among Republicans is that he lacks the interpersonal charm and warmth of a natural politician. Sure, all of his policies and the fights he picks are the ones they like, but they'd love for him to slap him on the back and joke around with them a bit more as he details his plans to outlaw the gender studies major from universities. Okay, sure, you might say that's a flaw. You'd like to see some of that good-natured, hail-fellow, well-met stuff from an excellent retail politician. But you know who else throws his head back and laughs with donors as they all decry the big, woke, neo-Marxist dumpster fire the world is becoming? coming. Sociopaths do. Narcissists do. Preening narcissists at that. And considering the other leading figure to be Republican nominee vowed this over the weekend. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Yeah, that is an exact quote from the Dark Lord Sauron to the orcs. So back to the one leading Republican candidate who doesn't share a raison d'etre with a third of all serial killers. DeSantis was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for three terms. And today in Politico, Rachel Bade and Bethany Irvine do some reporting, which includes an anecdote about what a good colleague he was. DeSantis was a Tea Party member, but not an attention-seeking one. And he bonded with fellow Republicans, including moderate Rodney Davis. As Davis told the Politico reporters, he'll always be in DeSantis' debt because DeSantis did a favor for Davis. So Davis, Illinois centrist, was facing a difficult re-election, complained to DeSantis about how a political event had been allowed on federal property amid the government shutdown. I'll quote from the story. At this event, a Democratic challenger had staged a protest at the shuttered National Park Service site of Abraham Lincoln's home, where a U.S. Department of Agriculture official joined her in blasting Davis for causing the shutdown. So DeSantis went up to Davis in the gym and said, guess what? The Park Service director is coming before the House committee. And then, according to Davis, DeSantis lit him up. And now Davis speaks glowingly of DeSantis. I was interested to hear exactly how DeSantis tore into the Park Service director. We found the tape, 2013 House Oversight Natural Resource National Park Service Director John Jarvis. Here it is. Runs about a minute. Director Jarvis, the Abraham Lincoln's home in Springfield, that's under your jurisdiction, National Park Service. And is, that's a yes, verbalized. And, 
And, it, and do you know, if, is it just the home or I, my understanding is that the area around it would also be uh, under the jurisdiction. Do you know if that's the case? I honestly do not know specifically in that regard. Okay, because I saw some news reports where there was a political congressional candidate that was holding a news conference basically right in front of the home. Um, and if, in fact, that was uh, an area that was under your jurisdiction that was closed, would that have been an appropriate thing to have done to kind of stage a media event there for partisan political purposes? Um, I don't know anything about that incident or case, and I'd really... Re I'd have to look into well, it. Well, just as a general matter, if a park was closed, would it be, and so an American citizen may not be get in, would there be uh, some type of an exception where a political candidate would be able to stage a media event no, if it was closed is, to the rest of the public? Park is closed for all events. Okay. Then DeSantis pivoted to some questions about the use of a forklift. It was all so unflashy, non-threatening, dare I even say within bounds, the park worker who is at Lincoln's home, a guy named Dwight Reynolds, according to the only article that seems to have been written about it, quote, did not claim allegiance to a political party and said his appearance Friday was not an endorsement of any candidate. The guy just didn't want to be furloughed. The political article uses that to then talk about how DeSantis was awkward and quiet back then, but clearly smart and capable. He contained greatness within him. Former colleagues are quoted as saying, former colleagues who want to be seen as talking up the man who might be king. To me... It's an example of, I'm not going to say DeSantis's true nature, but pre-Trump nature. He was more or less a normal politician who knew that at least back then, normal politicians did normal things like favors for allies and questioning officials under oath with a modicum of decorum. That stuff no longer sells. DeSantis was just back then trying to be the people's representative. Now he knows you need to be their retribution. On the show today, to the high seas to save the Dr. Christian Bernard of the mackerel world. But first, They Knew Which Way to Run is a seven-part series about one of the deadliest industrial disasters in history, the Union Carbide gas leak in Bhopal, India. Podcasters Molly Mulroy and Apoorva Dixit are up for an Ambi Award in the DIY category that'll be announced tomorrow. Today, we meet with the podcasters who found a great and important story to tell and a great way to tell it. Molly Mulroy, Apoorva Dixit, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. On December 2nd, 1984, there was an accident at the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant in Bhopal, India. Now, if you're my age, the name Bhopal probably strikes something of a chord. If you're younger, you might not know about, or much younger, you might not know about that at all. And in fact, this was the case for a third grade girl named Aporva Dixit. She was reading about Chernobyl. Everyone knows about Chernobyl. And there was a reference, a sentence in her class that said in the second worst industrial disaster was Bhopal. And then Aporva said, Bhopal? Wait a minute, my family's from Bhopal. And that interest led to, well, pretty much a lifetime of work and a seven-part podcast series called They Knew Which Way to Run. It is reported and produced by Aporva Dixit and Molly Mulroy, who both join me now. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. You had never heard of the disaster. You knew Bhopal. You knew enough Aporva to know that's my hometown or my family's hometown, but nothing about the disaster? Yeah. So I was born in Bhopal. We uh, grew up there until I was five. And then we moved to Memphis for my dad's job. Um, and literally, we would go back every other summer. Uh, my grandfather lived there. All our you know, extended family knew the whole neighborhood. Um, and genuinely, I can't recall a single time having ever talked about the Bhopal gas tragedy growing up. When you look back, were there signs like, oh, yeah, that's why, I don't know, this part of town was closed down, or that's why there were all these people with ailments? No, absolutely. Like, as um, I started doing this research and as we started putting together the podcast, that's when, like, all these, like, you know, random tidbits from childhood all of a sudden, like, clicked into place. So, like, for example, in third grade, um, I uh, actually went back and lived in Bhopal for a year. Um, My family went back for a year. And I remember having all these friends, like all these kids my age, all up and down the neighborhood. We lived in a neighborhood called Judge Colony. So all their parents are judges. Um, And I remember the next summer, you know, we ended up coming back to America. The next summer I went to visit. They're all gone. And it was so tragic. As a little kid, I was like, why have I lost all my friends? It wasn't until I was doing this research that I realized that all of those judges were compensation judges. And they were specifically... Uh, transferred into Bhopal to deal with this like backlog of compensation. This is 2003. The tragedy happened mm-hmm. in 1984. Um, and and it wasn't until the early 2000s that they finished distributing all the compensation. And that's why they were gone the next summer, because at that point, their job was done. So Molly, when, did she, did your friend Apoorva tell you about this immediately? When did you first hear about Bhopal from her or from anywhere else? No, definitely not in seventh grade. Um, Not until the end of college, um, when she was about to go on her Fulbright to Bhopal to live there for a year. Um, She was down in New Orleans visiting me and we were just talking. I was like, what 
even are you doing in India anyway? And she just started telling me all about it and I had all these questions and everything and I was, I had never heard of it from her or from any other source. Um, and I just couldn't believe that I had never heard of it, just something of this magnitude. Um, and so I just kept asking her all these questions and, and I was doing a different podcast at the time and I told her like, we should think about doing something together about this because, you know, no one our age knows about this. And, and as you said, people of different generations may like vaguely remember it, but definitely not to the extent that like she was about to dive into. So yeah. Why doesn't anyone your age know about it? Um, it's not just one explanation would be the American media is really bad about you know, any international news, certain any international news that doesn't happen in Europe, you go down the list. But even in India and the Indian government, there was a move towards suppressing this, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, in, and I, that's like one of our main questions in the podcast is why don't people talk about this? Because you're right, this was national, international headlines, you know, their New York Times, multiple New York Times front page news stories about football when it all happened in 1984. Um, and there are multiple similarly in India. And there have been, you know, law schools in India talk about this as like a major, you know, tort case. Like there have been all these articles written about it, all these books written about it. And yet there's no like cultural, you know, memory of it. Um, and even within Bhopal, uh, you talked of folks our age, you know, in their 20s or younger. And yeah, they get a day off from school every December 2nd, but they don't really know why. They don't really know what happened. They, you know, they know that something bad happened way back when, but like, that's kind of it. We have many theories for why this is. I think the biggest one is just intergenerational trauma. Like people don't like to talk about it. Adults very much had this sense of why pass on this pain to their kids. Mm -hmm. But then like, there's this larger issue of, um, the Indian government messed up. <laughs> the American government messed up. An American corporation messed up. You know, it, it was a huge international globalization issue. Um, India had just opened up to international direct investment. Um, this was meant to be one of, you know, a huge success story. And instead it became a huge tragedy. So there was a lot of, I, um, I think, political reasons too why People weren't really trying to preserve the memory of this. Right. Oh, sorry, Molly, you were going to say. No, just one of the things that I, I think is interesting is like Porva mentioned, you know, it was an American pesticide factory, right? An American company. Union Carbide, um, right. You know, immediately after the tragedy, all of these American personal injury lawyers flew into Bhopal. I mean, just hundreds of them. And um, what ended up happening in a lot of those civil cases was the judge here in America, in New York, basically punted the the case and said that, you know, oh, we don't want to be patronizing. We don't want to be paternalistic. India is its own country. They can handle this on their own, mm -hmm. which to a certain extent, okay, that's fine. But also India was a really new country. You know, they had recently gained their independence and they didn't have, you know, the court system set up to deal with this sort of magnitude of cases. So I think America certainly was like, oh, you guys just handle this. We don't really want to touch this. Right. They didn't have robust tort law that could hold corporations to account. As you say, they were in the early stages of globalization and industrialization. They didn't want to scare away other investment. 
And quite frankly, I think they probably would have calculated the value of an Indian life much lower than Americans would the value of an American life, but they didn't even have much experience in that. So it was definitely a combination of they were not motivated to issue a large verdict, and they probably didn't have the infrastructure to get to that decision or even enforce that decision anyway. Add it all up. How much... Well, first of all, we haven't chronicled the death toll. I think in India, it's what officially around 15,000? So the government says the death toll is around 3,000. Um, for that for that night. For, for that night. Um, they actually recently, in 2023, there was a new Supreme Court case where they tried to up the number to close to five or 6,000. But if you talk to any researcher, if you talk to anyone who's done any, like, indirect estimations based on, you know, the amount of wood that was sold for like cremations, the amount of like funeral shrouds, the amount of all these indirect ways to figure out how many folks died. The estimate is easily close to above 10,000, perhaps as high as 20 for the night of. And present day, the estimate is that as many as 500,000 people are affected. Right. Um, So in some ways have had, you know, disabilities or illnesses or like the new generation that is now exposed to the toxic waste of the still standing factory. Um, So it's, it's very much like an ongoing thing. And, and Union Carbide, so this particular process, which you get into in the documentary, Union Carbide has a plant in West Virginia doing the exact same thing. It's in, what's the name of the town? Some great Institute name Institute West Virginia. It's in Institute <laughs> West Virginia. But the difference, and I wouldn't want to live in Institute West Virginia, knowing what I know, but tell me about some of the differences, some of the very basic and infuriating differences between how they run their plant and Institute versus Bhopal. Yeah, so first, one of the most sort of basic things is that Institute, even back in the 80s, had this really robust like alarm system. And there were all these sort of fail safes. And and it had, you know, it was just going to be very clear. If there was an issue, the workers would know about it. The people nearby would know about it. It was going to be very clear. And the plant in Bhopal just did not have all of those same features. Um, Even from the beginning when they built it, they used all these cost-cutting measures. They used the wrong kind of steel, you know, to actually hold some of the chemicals in the different tanks. Right, because if the tanks rusted, it would be very harmful with these particular chemicals, and they just didn't take the care to make sure the tanks wouldn't rust. Exactly. So there were all of these different things. And then another issue was the alarm system itself. So... There were so many random leaks in the factory all the time that they just turned the alarm system off. Um, And so even the workers themselves would just rely on their own bodies to know if there was some kind of leak. Like if their eyes started watering, they knew that they needed to pay attention. What's what's going on? Um, They were their own canaries in the coal mine. Exactly. And, And as we talk about in the podcast, you know. There were so many signs um, sort of early on that night and and so many people just dismissed it. Yeah. And the two things I would add is like another huge difference between Institute and Bhopal is that Institute's uh, factory was like far, far away from civilization as um, it was meant to be, whereas in Bhopal it was put r- right next to the train station. The second thing I would add is that Molly's talking about all these accidents 
1984 was not the first time there was a huge accident in in the Bhopal plant. Um, In 1982, in fact, they had a worker die. And there was an investigative journalist that started looking into it and who started reporting on all of the different ways that, you know, the government wasn't properly regulating this plant and all the different ways that the corporation was cutting corners. And he started alarming, you know, sounding the alarm bells that like something is going on and something bad is going to happen. And he was ignored. Yeah. And but the compensation they got, or at least at the time, uh, was what? First one and a half billion dollars. Then it was appealed uh, by Union Carbide and they were forced to pay a little less than five hundred million dollars, which winds up being a thousand dollars per person. Yeah, what, exactly. uh, you know, you add it all up. What do the what have the victims gotten either per person or in total? No, that's about it. That's that's correct. Um, initially, they were asking for close to four billion, um, and eventually, Union Carbide and the Indian government settled out of court, um, and they ended up yeah about a thousand dollars per person, and which is just insane when you think of yeah. I mean, there's there's no putting a price to a human. Um, this is you know an issue that anytime you have a mass tort. like compensation is never going to be enough, but this was truly not enough. Yeah. But in America, you, I mean, not only when they make calculations about how much to spend on a highway versus how many lives saved, or you go to court and there are all different ways to calculate it based on lost income or whatever. It's like four, four and a half million dollars per person, I think is the latest federal figure. It's also interesting to note that, you know, with the compensation, they were supposed to get $1,000 per person, right? But how many people actually ended up getting that? Because in order to pick up your compensation check, you had to go there and bring your birth certificate and prove that you were there that night and prove that you were affected. And a lot of people who were affected were not able to do that. They didn't know what the process was. They didn't know what to say when they showed up and they didn't have a birth certificate, you know? So even even though you can say, uh, you know, Union Carbide might say, oh, well, we, you know, gave out compensation. We gave $1,000 per person. But how many people actually got that? And, and, and so, you know, there's a whole other layer of, of complication to the actual um, implementation of that. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, you have this story, you're a, a researcher and someone with a direct connection, a Porva, and you have a friend, Molly, your friend since you guys were, were kids. And is the reason it's a podcast was because you had the expertise and she thought in terms of podcasts, she was a podcaster to begin with? Molly and I are best friends. So it was like (laughs) an easy, easy way to stay in touch. We, you know, had a daily or not, well, maybe daily, but we definitely had a weekly phone call um, that like Molly would record, you know? So we have like all this um, recordings of ourselves and our own like initial reactions to as all of this, the year itself was unfolding. Um, So I think our friendship was a huge motivator too. Um, And I think the third thing for me was, I was getting to hear these people's stories, right? And like what was impactful about that was actually hearing their voices. Um, So I was doing anthropology study. I was doing an ethnography. And generally ethnographies are are reports. Generally, you know, like the researcher goes in, collects all their data, and then like comes back. And the voices are can be very removed, you know? Like the Mm -hmm. stories they're telling can be very removed from like the actual voices of the humans. Um, 
And like we already had the idea of the podcast going in, but especially when I was there, it just became so clear that we had to actually convey their actual voices. Mm. So Molly, tell me a little bit about your podcasting experience or expertise going in. Expertise, thank you, but I don't know about that. But experience, yeah. Just when Apoorva came to visit me, you know, we were finishing up university and I was doing a thesis um, about the um, criminal justice system in New Orleans. And I was doing a podcast on that. I just decided to do a podcast uh, as the format for my thesis. And so I had been interviewing these people who were coming home from prison and about their experiences. And I think exactly what Apoorva said, hearing their voice, you know, their version of events that I would never be able to tell in the same way. You know, there's no way that I could portray that um, in an honest fashion. And I just think that when Apoorva was telling me all of this and she was saying, you know, I don't because with Fulbright, I think they're, you know, they're expected to do the research and, and provide, you know, some sort of report, but the, the the type and the format and like sort of what they actually come up with at the end is sort of up to them. And she was, you know, debating different things. And I was like, well, what if you recorded their voices, you know, and you actually had not just your report, but their actual version of events. Um, and I think it just, it all kind of came together in, in that sense. How many total hours would you two say you spent on it? Oh, oh man, that is an impossible. I mean, to begin with, Apoorva has over a hundred hours of interviews, much more than that. And then she had to transcribe all of them because obviously I don't speak Hindi, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so and, and our listeners don't speak Hindi. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of writing and rewriting the scripts and and reaching out to friends for things, I mean, it is Many years, <laughs> many years. We had an initial episode, actually, like the very first year that I got back. Initially, we thought we'd just do like one, like, you know, episode of bow tie the whole experience and be done. And then we made it and we hated it. <laughs> so you didn't even put it out? You no. Find no. It? no, no. Was it called <laughs> They Knew Which Way to Run? I think we had the name already, um, but it was, I mean, just in tone and in quality, (laughs) just very different. It was just way too much was packed in, you know? It was like a bad pilot episode. Um, You wanted to get deeper on literally every, you know, section, and we didn't have space for that. Well, that's good. You had to get it out of your system. But the reason I ask about all the uh, time, one of the reasons I ask about all the time that was put in, you were funded for the Fulbright. But if you don't mind me asking, what was the, speak as specifically or generally as you want, how many people did listen to it, either per episode or in total? So in total, we have over 5,000 listeners, I think. Yeah, close to 6,000. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's good. That's 5,000 more people who know. But my point is that if there was any sort of, let us say, uh, justice or mechanism for discovery or just ability for people to find a podcast that was really done as an independent project and elevated to people's consciousness, it would be a lot better. So I'm trying to do a little bit of that. But (laughs) it must have been a big frustration. I mean, I'm sure you were proud. I'm sure you were happy. The work is good. But of all the things and of all the uh, labor you put into it, I don't know, I would imagine on the back end, um, the fact that it there was just there seemed to be no way for it to get that much bigger or more attention must have been a, a very frustrating thing. I think one of the things that I found the most frustrating was was, you know, we'd reach out to an organization or an individual person. And I will say a couple people got on a quick call with us, you know, so it's not like we were totally ignored. But 
I felt we felt very ghosted by a lot of these organizations. You know, they'd say like, oh, you know, they give us a quick little feedback and then we'd say, okay, well, you know, it would do you think it would make sense to do this or like, would you be interested in, you know, I don't know, any kind of connection of any kind. And then we silence. Well, what kind, I, I'm a little confused. What kind of organizations do you mean? Pretty much every podcast studio um, has a page that's kind of like, you know, send us your idea, send us your podcast. Like, we'll, we'll work with you. And mm-hmm. yeah, or like there's these, you know, programs for DIY podcasts up and coming. We'll partner with you. We'll right. give you an editor or we'll give you an advisor. We applied to those and we applied to all these things and we emailed and we sent, you know. Yeah. So- and as like newcomers to the field, we didn't even know what tools were out there, you know? So like we were like, that was half the research was just like, who can we even be pitching to? Um, But then once that phase was over and we were kind of like, okay, pitching is not going to work. We're going to have to put this out in the world ourselves. (laughs) We were really pleased by the response. But at the same time, like living in the world that we do where things go viral and, you know, there's like tens of millions of hits overnight and this and that. Like, yeah, 5,000 feels like such a small (laughs) number, Um, especially, yeah, after having put in put in a lot of thought and love. I would doubt that anyone said this to you explicitly, but did you either get the vibe or said it must have been that the the topic was just a bummer, you know? 10,000 people dead on the other side of the world and no one even here even knows what the, what the single word that's shorthand for that. Bhopal, no one even can place that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that was the biggest, when we were pitching it, that was the biggest like question that stumped us was that everyone's, you know, was just like, why now? Yeah. And another thing, I mean, we, you know, everyone, in- including all of us right now on this on this interview, we've talked about, you know, comparing it to Chernobyl. Well, why now Chernobyl? It right. Has- I was going to say, why did HBO commission that series now? It doesn't matter what the answer is. It was good and compelling. Yeah. Same thing with, I, I guess there was a anniversary that ended in a zero with the Tulsa race massacre, but same question. Like, let us perhaps unearth parts of our history that shouldn't even be history that are worth knowing about without the greatest, shiniest peg in the world. Yeah. And the other thing, I mean, it did it did motivate us to like, I, I do think there actually is a very compelling why now in that there are parallels of football everywhere. Mm-hmm. East Palestine, Ohio. Um Lots of parallels there, like Turkey, lots of parallels there. You know, like the, like the story of um, long-term chronic government and corporate negligence leading to a disaster being way worse than... Particularly particularly in vulnerable communities, right? I mean, it's just we see this time and time again. And, and also, I think another thing that was the why now that we kept telling people and kept getting ignored was that... It's ongoing. It's not even necessarily a thing of the past. The actual, you know, tragedy, the the gas leak was a thing of the past. Right. But the water leak. I mean, people are still having all this brown water, you know, come out of Why their taps. Why now? Because and... it is now. Because yeah. it is going on now. Exactly. The name of the podcast is They Knew Which Way to Run. We've been talking with the co-creators and co-host of Porva Dixit and Molly Mulroy. It is also up for an Ambie Award in the DIY category, which means podcast done for under $3,000 an episode. That, by the way, is an order of magnitude higher than what these two actually spent on their worthwhile podcasts. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been so great.
the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now, the spiel. The United Nations member states, 190 of them, agreed to a treaty that will provide a legal framework for establishing vast marine protected areas, MPAs, on the high seas. Yes, the high seas. I gotta admit, I never knew what the high seas were. I mean, I knew it wasn't this. And I'm sure the pirates, all those pirates, weren't talking about this. High sea fruit drinks are so cool, so delicious, and come in so many real fruit flavors. That's why you love high sea. I still don't understand why that drink would name itself after the fourth letter of the second word of high fructose corn syrup, you know, the active ingredient. But it was the 70s. Telly Savalas was a sex symbol. What are you going to do? Loves you, baby. You're beautiful. What the high seas really mean is a lot more specific than I thought. I thought it was like the Great White Way or the Heartland, but no. The high seas are defined as the area of the world's oceans located 200 miles or more off national coasts. Who knew? This is like saying the heart. No, that's not the heartland. The heartland begins at 82 degrees west latitude. You're talking about Pittsburgh, bro. Speaking of pirates again, I thought the high seas was just that, was just vague, blustery, seafaring jargon. Next, I'll be told, you know, you're technically not a land lubber. You're, you're more of a land liker. The agreement, back to the UN agreement protecting the high seas, has been two decades in the making and it is not yet finalized. Speaking on Canada's Global News, Susanna Fuller of Oceans North took a wait in high seas approach. And we'll see how much of the high seas gets protected. Yeah. In fact, it would take 60 nations to ratify the deal, which out of 190 in the UN doesn't seem like a lot. Also, it really doesn't seem like a lot when you consider that there are over 40 nations that are entirely landlocked. So it doesn't seem much downside to say Afghanistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Bhutan, Laos, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, Nepal. I'm not going to name them all, but Macedonia, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Ethiopia, Malawi. Not going to name them all, but if all those countries got together and said, yeah, we got nothing to lose by ratifying a treaty about what other people who get to the ocean can't do in it. I'm not saying that the landlocked nations should not get a vote, but not those, not the ones I listed, but let's think about Liechtenstein and Uzbekistan. Those are landlocked countries surrounded entirely by other landlocked countries. They're landlocked by the landlocked. It's like a kid being raised in the basement of a fallout shelter. If Uzbekistan and Liechtenstein invaded and occupied one of their neighbors, they would still be landlocked. And I am, for the record, not suggesting Liechtenstein try it on Switzerland. But 
Do they really sacrifice a thing by signing an ocean treaty when they've only just heard rumors of the ocean? This is like asking Chad to sign the treaty to end the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Chad, by the way, another landlocked country. This isn't to say that Kazakhstan and the Sudans of the world, for instance, don't have a stake in all this. According to the New York Times, one question is, quote, who will profit if valuable genetic resources, say a cure for cancer, are discovered somewhere in the high seas? Sure. So if somewhere out there a fish cures cancer, who gets to keep the magic fish? It is a practical concern. Well, here is Jessica Pangiris, political advisor and reef expert of Greenpeace, speaking with the Australian broadcasting company, weighing in with a bit more detail on that cancer-curing sturgeon. Over time, we've discovered more and more really incredibly important biological material that's gone into some of our most important medical innovations, for example. Um, Now, the high seas is very sort of underexplored. And so there's been a real race on to who gets to own that genetic material that's discovered for the first time in the world's oceans and that might lead to the next generation of medical breakthroughs, for example. Well, that does make more sense. To quote the Times once more, developing nations said that they had a right to share in both scientific knowledge and in possible future profits. Wealthier nations countered that if companies were unable to get sufficient return on investment, they may lack the incentive to invest in marine research. Look, Chad, if we have to share in our cancer-curing profits, I don't know, maybe we just won't cure cancer. I'm not saying we'll leave the trout unmolested out of a fit of peak, but you know, what is Azerbaijan? Why do you guys deserve any miracle fish money anyway? And by the way, who's to protect us from after we find the magic cancer fish? Who's to protect us from a Turkmenistan or a Botswana ripping us off? And that, by the way, puts us back right to where we started, piracy on the high seas. See? See what I'm saying? The international treaties and marine protection considerations, they seem so simple. Who would ever oppose them? But they aren't as easy as they first appear. See? And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist and the creator of Magic Fish. Joel Patterson drank entirely too much pouched beverages as a youth. He is also the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca, CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com